Well, good morning, folks. Uh, we're tackling an ambitious chunk of text today in our study of Acts. It's two and a half chapters. It's 21 verse 1 through to 23, 11. Uh, but we've covered a great deal of this before in our video series. So, so don't worry, this won't be unduly long. Uh, but last week, we looked at the New Testament gift of prophecy. That was a fairly uh, intensive, it was a very close study. Today is going to be different. Today, I'm going to more or less read the 2,000 words of Luke's text. So that's one third of our lesson time right there. And I'll be making some clarifying comments along the way. We also need to consider certain themes that Luke touches on in these chapters, themes unifying the entire book. And my goal is to finish teaching the book of Acts in the projected time remaining for this third on, uh, Ontario lockdown, which means after today, we have five and a half chapters to go. That shouldn't be a problem, but we'll have to wait and see. I kind of make this up as I go along each week. So we're going to begin. Turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And as we chart the last leg of Paul's third missionary journey to Jerusalem, it may be helpful to follow along on the map in your handout on page three. And we notice right away in verse one that this is one of those we passages in the book of Acts. Luke's using the first person plural. So at this point, he's traveling with Paul. He's a witness to the things described here. Verse one. After we had torn ourselves away from them, that is the Ephesian elders they had met in Miletus in chapter 20, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. And, and Kos is an, an island in the Aegean, although it's spelled with a C on your map, not a K. The next day we went to Rhodes, another island, and from there to Patera, which is the main port in the province of Lycia. And at this point, Paul and his companions, they leave the small coastal ship that they've been traveling in, and now they board a larger seagoing vessel for the remaining 650-kilometer journey to Tyre, the most important port of Phoenicia in present-day Lebanon. At this time, Phoenicia was part of the Roman province of Syria. So, verse 2. We're just traveling along with Paul. After we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, uh, we went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus... Uh, and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. And I'm going to pass over these next verses now without much comment. Uh, this was the focus of last week's lesson. So you can listen to the podcast if you really want to hear the, the full Monty. Verse 4. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard of the ship, and they returned home. So perhaps then, as Grudem suggests, these prophets had received some revelation about the apostles' impending sufferings and interpreted them to mean Paul should not go to Jerusalem. Whatever the case... The prophecy, so far as Paul is concerned, needed evaluating, and in the form he received it from them, rejecting. Verse 7, we continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus. That's a seaport about 130 clicks north of Jerusalem, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, that's 65 kilometers to the south, and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist one of the seven. 
And of course, this is the same Philip who was one of the seven proto-deacons of Acts chapter 6. He's also the man that the Lord used to convert the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So Philip the Evangelist. Uh, I had a friend in high school. His name was Kevin, but nobody called him that except for his mom. Uh, Everybody called him by his nickname, Pipes. And he was called Pipes because of the massive amounts of weed he smoked uh, with the aid of a colorful assortment of pipes and bongs. So what a dishonorable nickname that is. And I'm here to tell you that Pipes did all he could to earn that nickname. Uh, But here we have Philip the Evangelist. What an excellent nickname. What a badge of honor that is. Or you can think of that other early church figure, Barnabas the Encourager. Uh, What would your nickname be? What would you like it to be? You couldn't do much better than Evangelist or Encourager. That's something to aspire to. We also read that Philip had four unmarried daughters who were all prophetesses, which is in keeping with Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2, isn't it? Remember the the Old Testament prophecy of Joel? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So, but the thing is, though, despite mention here of their gift of these four daughters, it's another prophet, Agabus, who gives the warning to Paul at Caesarea. And we went at this hammer and tongs last Lord's Day, so I won't comment on it here. We'll just read the text. Verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Verse 15, after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of uh, Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. And now, New City, with verse 17, we begin what's called Paul's fourth missionary journey. And this extends to the end of the book. Paul's fourth missionary journey represents his arrest in Jerusalem, his two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, his appeal to Caesar, his journey in custody to Rome, and his house arrest in the capital. And although this period isn't an intentional uh, outreach planned and implemented by the Apostle Paul, it's appropriately called, I think, a missionary journey because, as we'll see, the Apostle takes every opportunity to share the gospel. What an example this man is to us. And and this is one of the way, I think, to to read the remaining chapters of Acts with real spiritual profit. Paul evangelizes no matter what the circumstances are. He blooms where he's planted, never mind the chains. 
And, and now Luke uses the narrative of Paul's arrest and his journey to Rome to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to advance despite opposition, despite apparent setbacks. Uh, indeed, it advances to the ends of the earth. Uh, the expansion of the church is unstoppable. It's the work of God. Look at the top of page one of your handout. The key verse for the geographical spread of the gospel in Acts. We need to read the rest of the book in light of this verse, I think. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Here the resurrected Jesus speaking to his apostles before ascending to heaven. He promises, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that verse is clearly programmatic for the geographical spread of the gospel in Acts, right? This is the method. This is how the risen Christ will continue to act and to teach and his kingdom advance to the ends of the earth. It's going to be through the witness of his apostles empowered by the promised Holy Spirit. And, and do you see, did you notice those, those sort of concentric circles? You have Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in God's sovereign providence, Paul's arrest and eventual trial at Caesar's court in Rome is part of the means to accomplish that plan. Verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. And this isn't the Apostle James, of course. He was martyred in chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, this is Jesus' half-brother, James. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's the author of the New Testament letter of James. Paul greeted them, verse 19, and reported in detail. Uh, sorry, somebody just... I just got an email. I just totally distracted me. <laughs> um, uh, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. So here we have the Jerusalem church and its leaders warmly receiving Paul and his report of, of gospel fruitfulness among the Gentiles. They, they love hearing this. This is entirely in line uh, with their earlier delight when Paul reports about many Gentile conversions in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is a very important chapter. In other words, uh, Philip the evangelist, his experiences in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and then Peter's visit with Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10 and 11, that's prepared the Jerusalem church, which is basically 100% Jewish, is prepared the Jerusalem church to delight in the progress of the gospel among non-Jews. This is post-Acts 15, after all, in the conference in Jerusalem. Look at verse 25. You can, you can see their attitude. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. All, all those things are, are, are pagan uh, temple rites that they're talking about there. Nevertheless, the church leaders in Jerusalem are aware that a substantial number of conservative Jews are out to get Paul. They've heard the apostle counseling, quote unquote, all 
the Jews in the diaspora, right? Those Jews living outside of Israel, not to circumcise their children or to follow the law of Moses. So look at verse 20, the second part of it. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you, will, that, that you have come. So what the church leaders now, they devise a plan to help Paul sort of regain a reputation for observing conservatism. Uh, verse 23. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. And that passage is really controversial. You can, you can see where the, where the difficulty comes in, I'm sure, because doesn't Paul himself say that he's flexible on such matters? Um, we talked about this in our video lesson from uh, Acts chapter 16. Now, do you recall Paul's circumcision of Timothy, a Gentile? Uh, we also considered 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. Uh, you, we should actually turn there, I think. Just turn there quickly. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 to 23. Um, here we see this is Paul's evangelistic outlook. And he's, he's saying this as somebody who is a Jew. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. And then there's this explosive statement, though I myself am not under the law of Moses. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, to Gentiles, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under, under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings." So we read that, that's his outlook, that's his philosophy of evangelism and living. And so what in the world then is going on here in chapter 21? Well, before we write off the Jerusalem elders and Paul uh, himself for just massive inconsistency in how he lives and what he teaches, um, we, we need to note a couple of things. The first is this, the initial charge is that Paul exhorts all Jews living in the diaspora outside of Israel to abandon circumcision and the law of Moses. Is that true? Is that actually what Paul counsels? No, Paul does not do that. Certainly, I mean, he, he refuses to allow circumcision and kosher food laws uh, to become a test of spirituality. But nowhere in Paul's writings, anywhere in the Bible, do you read that he is an advocate of universal abandonment of the law. Paul circumcised Timothy, right, to advance the, the communication of the gospel amongst the Jews. That, that speaks volumes to, to his willingness to flex and to bend. And Paul himself took a Nazarite vow back in chapter 18, right? It's the same vow that gets him in trouble here in this chapter, but he took the same vow himself. 
as, as, as you know, as a believer in the new covenant. So the charge itself is false. It's not true. Second, it might be that the biggest fear of some of these conservative Jews is that Paul would desecrate the temple. That's the charge we see coming up in verses 27 to 29. We'll get there in a second, but desecration of the temple seems to be the biggest fear. So the church elders are therefore seeking to demonstrate that while he was in Jerusalem, Paul was a carefully observant Jew, even paying for the temple purification rites of others. It's, it's not, we don't need to take it beyond that. While he's in Jerusalem, Paul is a carefully observant Jew. And this is their well-intentioned plan. But in the providence of God, Paul is arrested, just as it was prophesied that he would be. And thus the apostle arrives for the first time in Rome, and the gospel is heard in Caesar's courts. Verse 26. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. So these opponents, the, these Jews from the province of Asia, they're probably from Ephesus and know Paul from his three years living in that city. Look at verse 29. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, right, a Gentile, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Okay, let's, let's break this down. While Paul is in the temple finishing his support for the Nazarite vow, some of his Jewish opponents recognize, uh, from Ephesus recognize him and accuse him of teaching against the Jewish people, teaching against the law, teaching against the temple, and bringing Gentiles beyond the outer court of the Gentiles and the, into the inner courts of the temple thus desecrating the temple of God. Paul is in serious, serious trouble here. He's in danger of losing his life. Temple desecration, any temple of any religion throughout the Roman Empire was punishable by death. Now, normally, a person charged with such offense would be handed over to the temple authorities for trial, and if found guilty, they'd be executed. But the lynching of someone caught in the act of temple desecration was apparently condoned. Verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. And those are probably the gates between the inner and the outer courts, probably shut by the captain of the temple to prevent further desecration. Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, News reached the commander, a, a tribune in the Greek. He's the commander of 1,000 troops. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. So if you look at the, at the picture of the temple on page one of your handout, uh, you look at the upper right-hand corner. Roman soldiers were 
quartered in the Herodian fortress known as the Tower of Antonia on the northwest corner of the temple wall. It's a high tower. It provided a full view of the temple area and it had two flights of stairs leading into the grounds. So these soldiers could run down to the crowd almost immediately. When the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains, probably one for his feet and one for his hands, as per Agabus's prophecy back in verse 11. And just, just okay, guys, just indulge me. Once more, as we look at the differences, the errors in the prophetic details here, okay? Look at verse 11. He took, he, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So if you were here last week, you know, Agabus perhaps rightly saw Paul bound and in the hands of the Romans, but wrongly expressed it as a prophecy that Paul would be bound by the Jews. He explicitly says that and handed over by them to the Gentiles. He was, in fact, in reality, rescued by Roman soldiers from a Jewish mob who were trying to kill him. Verse 33b, then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. In other words, kill him, kill him. Verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. And we later discovered that this Roman tribune's name is Claudius Lysias. And Lysias asks Paul in verse 38, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out in the wilderness some time ago? And interestingly, the, the Jewish historian Josephus refers to this Egyptian. He calls him a false prophet, a man who led his followers uh, to the Mount of Olives, claiming that the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command. And the Roman governor, Felix, and we'll be meeting Governor Felix next week, Lord willing, uh, he routed uh, the 4,000 men, but the Egyptian himself escaped. So Lysias, the tribune, must have thought that this terrorist had returned to Jerusalem to stir up another revolt. So that's kind of the context here. Paul denies it. I am not an Egyptian terrorist. Verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Uh, Tarsus was a very prosperous city. It was privileged. It was cultured. In fact, it was very famous for its school. In a way, it's a lot like Cambridge in, in England. Uh, and Paul's saying all of this, of course. He's talking to the Tribune in flawless Greek. Please, let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. And Luke notes the language because while the people of Israel used uh, Hebrew in the synagogues, they spoke Aramaic. So Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, Aramaic is the language spoken throughout that film and it's subtitled in English. So the crowd... Uh, grow silent as they hear the apostles speak to them in their mother tongue. Verse 20, no, chapter 22, verse 1. 
Brothers and sisters, listen now to my defense. And in a minute, I'm going to read Paul's defense speech straight through without comment. How can I presume to do such a thing? This, this monstrous impertinence. Uh, well, if you'll recall, uh, we began this video series with Paul's Damascus Road conversion. Uh, there's no need to cover the same ground in, in details. Plus, Paul recounts his conversion later in the book as well. Uh, but before reading the text, it's important I explain something. So far, Luke has portrayed the Apostle Paul as on the offensive. Uh, Paul's a man taking bold initiatives under the leading of the Holy Spirit to evangelize most of Asia Minor and Greece. Uh, but with his arrival in Jerusalem, his whole career abruptly changed. This is like the pivot point. He's assaulted. He's arrested. He's bound. He's brought to trial. Now the Apostle Paul finds himself on the defensive. So following Paul's three epic missionary journeys, Luke now describes the Apostle's five trials. The first is before this Jewish crowd at the northwest corner of the temple area. That's chapter 22. The second is before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. We'll get to that today. The third and fourth trial are at Caesarea before Felix and Festus, who succeeded one another as the governor of Judea. That's chapters 24 and 25. And the fifth trial, also in Caesarea, is before King Herod Agrippa II, chapter 26. And these five trials, including in each case Paul's defense speech, together with the circumstances of the arrest, take up six chapters in our Bibles, or nearly 200 verses. So here's the $64,000 question, you city. Why on earth did Luke consider it necessary to go into such detail? Be, be honest, all right? You, you wonder that every single time you read through the book of Acts, don't you? Uh, we love the first 21 chapters, but this is where things get tough. Genuinely helpful devotional times in the book of Acts become difficult I think probably for most of us at this point. <clears throat> Why did Luke consider it necessary to go into such detail? Uh, well, of course, the material was readily available to him. And Luke was there throughout, right? I mean, he's a witness to all of this. Um, he arrived in Jerusalem with, Saul, with Paul, and then he sailed with the apostle to Rome. And during the two years of Paul's custody in Caesarea, Luke was a free man. Right? So it's natural to assume that he remained in Palestine, gathering information for his two-volume work, personally interviewing some of its chief actors. It's just natural to assume that. Um, but Luke has a better reason for this, uh, this comparatively full account of Paul's trials than the mere circumstance that he had firsthand material at his disposal. Luke is more than an historian. Luke is a theologian as well. And one of the major themes he's been developing concerns the relations between Jews and Gentiles in these days of the early church. That's a, that's a huge preoccupation with the book of, of Luke and Acts. Uh, Luke's, Luke's shown how Paul, called and commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles, has by now on three solemn occasions in Pisidian Antioch, in Corinth, and in Ephesus, we, we covered all of those texts, he's left the synagogue 
and exchange Jewish uh, evangelism for Gentile evangelism. It's no accident that Luke's story begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. In Acts 21 to 23, so the text that we're studying today, Luke depicts the reaction to the gospel of two different communities, the Jews who are increasingly hostile to it, and the Romans who are consistently friendly to it. And these two themes of Jewish opposition and Roman justice are interwoven in Luke's narrative with the Apostle Paul sort of caught between the two. So, starting the chapter fresh, then Paul said, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, brought up in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, uh, the most prominent Jew of Paul's day. He's a Pharisee. He's also, he was the lone voice in the Sanhedrin to speak up against the immediate death sentence for John and Peter in Acts chapter 5. So I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the laws of our ancestors. I mean, he's making a lot of uh, common bridges, like I'm a Jew, you're a Jew, here's our co- sort of our common heritage where I'm coming from. I was just as zealous for God as, as any of you, as you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one. That's a messianic designation. And to hear words from his mouth. Which means Paul was chosen to know God's will in a direct, in a personal way, uh, by being able to see the risen Christ and to hear words from his mouth. Verse 15, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. 
And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. The Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Okay, whoa, <laughs> what happened? Everything seemed to be going so well. Uh, why does the crowd suddenly turn murderous again at the mention of verse 21? Because for devout conservative Jews, what's at issue here is the law of God, the exclusive primacy of the temple, and their understanding of Holy Scripture. We, we need to understand this. From their perspective, Paul was destroying what God himself had set up. From their perspective, Paul was entangling the covenant people of God in compromises with pagans. And not only was Paul jeopardizing their identity, but he was also blaspheming the Almighty, whose people they were and whose revelation they were appointed to obey and to preserve. At the same time, though, I mean, they're acting as though God is so exclusively the property of ancestral Jews that Gentiles can't get a look in. Uh, they're suffering from a, a, a sadly tribal vision of God, a vision of Yahweh that's not supported by the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And we've covered this section, this next section in our series as well, this matter of Paul's Roman citizenship back in chapter 16. So I'm just going to read the account and then move on. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. And he decides that the best way to do that, to find get to the bottom of all this, is to bring him before the Sanhedrin, right? Like the high Jewish court. So the next day, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. And you can see what that would have looked like on page two of your handout. There's 71 men led by the high priest. That's what the, an assembly of the Sanhedrin would have looked like. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. And we'll consider the first 11 verses of chapter 23 and then close. 23 verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And when Paul claims that he's acted in all good conscience, he means his conscience is clear of any blame with regard to the conduct of his life 
as a Christian, as a Jewish Christian specifically, right? I have fulfilled my duty to God. Paul wasn't aware of any fault responding to God's direction for his apostolic ministry. What he had just said, right, in the courtyard, that, that the God of, our, our, of, the, of their Jewish ancestors had chosen him, right, to know his will and to see the righteous one, to see the Messiah, Jesus, the same man this court had condemned as a false Christ, uh, and to hear words from his mouth, his resurrected, glorified mouth, uh, the one whose name washes away sin, and that he, Paul, had been commissioned to take God's message of his crucified Messiah, Jesus, to the Gentiles. He says here, in all of this, my Jewish brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest, Ananias, he is appalled by this claim. Verse 2, at this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. The prisoner was guilty of blasphemy. How dare this man? How dare he represent himself as being a conscientious Jew, uh, being given this commission, you know, by this crucified Messiah? It's just blasphemous. And this, this same Ananias, by the way, the, he's the son of Nebadias. He was appointed high priest by the brother of Herod Agrippa I, which is not how things are supposed to be done. That's not how high priests become high priests. And he reigned from 47 AD to 59. After that, he continued to wield great authority until he was murdered. Jewish freedom fighters killed Ananias at the outbreak of the Jewish revolt in 66 AD because of the collaboration with Rome. And that revolt ended in 70 AD with the destruction of, of, of everything. Uh, so after being struck, Paul responds with a warning of divine judgment and verse 3 turns out to be prophetic. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, which is a metaphor for hypocrisy. Uh, Paul's echoing the sort of challenge given by Jesus to teachers of the law and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27 to 28, isn't he? Very famous passage. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So he's, he's echoing Christ in this. But then Paul adds this reproof. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And somewhat surprisingly, Paul's reply is, brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. Uh, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. So Paul expresses respect for the office of high priest, even if he's critical of the behavior of the one who currently holds the position. Uh, but how in the world could Paul not have recognized that Ananias is the high priest? Well, some say this, some say that, uh, but to my thinking, there seems to be evidence in the New Testament that Paul was close to blind. For instance, Galatians 4.15, he writes, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your, your eyes and given them to me. 
Galatians 6.11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. And then here, not recognizing the high priest when he's sitting 10 feet in front of him. So people have wondered, could this be the famous thorn in Paul's flesh that he's close to blind? I wouldn't want to build a state case on it, right? But I mean, it's, it, looks, it looks like it could be likely. Verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, on a superficial reading of that, Paul's words divide the assembly because Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees do not. So we might be tempted to think that this is a very clever strategy on Paul's part. He's thinking the court is hostile. I'm being used as a punching bag here by the high priest. This is getting nowhere fast. Let's throw an eschatological monkey wrench into these proceedings and get me off the hook here. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what he's thinking. This is not a cynical attempt to win support in the, in the, in the Sanhedrin by the, by the Pharisee faction. I say that because throughout his following speeches in Acts, and there's a lot of them, the Apostle Paul regularly comes back to this glorious theme, even when it no longer provokes disruption. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. He, he, he goes at that all the time. Um, we're going to see this next week in his trial before Felix. But Paul says in chapter 24, verse 15, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. See, same words. Uh, 24, 21, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And he says before the Jews in Rome, when he gets there finally, 28, 20, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Uh, also, we're going to see the resurrection is central to his climactic defense speech before King Agrippa in chapter 26, verse 6. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 26-22, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would uh, said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So Paul links, this is very important. Paul links the prophetic hope of Israel's future with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His proclamation of the resurrection is the fulfillment of the same hope that his fellow Jews have and is therefore the hope of Israel. In this sense, then, Jesus' followers are not against the law and the prophets. The one that they proclaim as the risen Lord was anticipated by the law and the prophets. Verse 7. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. They said, 
what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Because Pharisees believe in angels and spirits and in a future resurrection, though they don't accept Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the Sadducees, though, they reject the very idea of resurrection as well as belief in angels and spirits. They're a very divided group. And amazingly, I mean, this is one of the astonishing couple of verses there. Some Pharisees at Paul's trial in the Sanhedrin grant that a spirit or an angel may have visited him. While the Sadducees reject the possibility altogether. Verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away uh, from them by force and bring them into the barracks. So once again, the Roman barracks function as a place of protection uh, from Jews who seek his life. Last verse, a marvelous last verse, verse 11. The following night, the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What a precious, gracious revelation this is. It's, it's a personal revelation made to Paul at this strategic point, just after this eruption of violence in the Sanhedrin, and just before Paul's life is further threatened, as we'll see next week, uh, by an assassination attempt. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And of course, in chapter 27, Paul receives a further vision during the dangerous sea voyage to Rome. He tells his companions on the foundering ship, 2723, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So in closing, brothers and sisters, would you turn once more to page one of your handout at the very top, Acts chapter one, verse eight, the key verse for the geographical spread of the gospel in Acts. Here, the resurrected Jesus speaking to his apostles before ascending to heaven says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the method, beloved. This is how the risen Christ will continue to act and to teach and his kingdom advance to the ends of the earth through the witness of his apostles empowered through the promised Holy Spirit. But it will be as a prisoner that Paul gets to bear witness to Christ. Amen.